we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia. Hi, I'm Liz Guinness and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. This episode I'm talking to Michael Smith. Michael is a passionate pilot and adventurer and the first person to circle the earth in a tiny flying boat. Picture this, a flying bathtub crossing the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. It took Michael seven months to fulfil his dream and the trip has forever changed him. It's my absolute pleasure to chat with Michael today on this episode of Talking Australia. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, Michael. I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Lovely to be here. Ah, uh, You flew up from Melbourne? I did and I've just... I stayed in Macquarie Street and just had a lovely walk through the park to get here. Oh, it's a beautiful day. It's meant to be like 24 degrees. No way. Sunny. So I didn't need the wool on winter. I put Because I'm in <laughs> Melbourne mode. Not. That's exactly right. Exactly. Um, so we would love to talk to you today about your solo circumnavigation of the world um, in your, f- I've heard you call it a flying bathtub. Yeah, only because everyone else did and I, it kind of rubbed off. It, it, well, look, it's a little bit bigger than a bathtub. It's uh-huh. more like a jacuzzi. A jacuzzi. Well, very comfy for one, I hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just in terms of that, do you want to tell people what it actually is, the plane, rather than a flying bathtub? So it's officially called a flying boat. Uh-huh. And uh, a flying boat is a plane where the, it, the hull of the plane lands on the water. So people are familiar with often uh, Catalina. Um, or the Sunderland flying boats, and they they were the ones uh, that say took off from Rose Bay, uh, whereas a seaplane is a plane which has like catamaran floats below it. So, I've got this lovely little plane called a Sea Ray, made in Florida, and and it was made specially for you. Yes, it was yeah. actually a kit plane that was assembled so that instead of its normal five hours of fuel range, uh, we could put up to twenty one hours of fuel in it. And but it's really a plane that. People would buy, in the same way they might buy a jet ski, it's for a bit of weekend fun. It's uh-huh. not really designed to go around the world. And So what made you think you would go around the world in it then? Well, I'd had one for years and I, when I decided I was really keen to learn to fly, I was really interested in the idea of seaplane flying. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandfather had served on Catalinas in World War II, so oh, it was something okay. I'd been conscious of mm-hmm. from a very early age. But also I've been sailing since I was a kid and I've always had this you know, really deep connection to the water and I also you know from a convenience point of view I live in Williamstown in Melbourne which is right on the water Mm -hmm. and I thought rather than having to drive to an airport wouldn't it be great if you could have a plane at the yacht club and take off from there now it never nothing's ever as practical as the initial thought so it turns out that you know operating a plane off salt water there's a lot of maintenance and things but for, for quite a few years I did keep a plane in Williamstown at the Yacht Club. and Was it the only one there? Oh, uh, there's actually another one. Uh, it was a seaplane uh, that does um, like joy flights and things and I was able to keep it there next to that. But it's kind of a cool thing that it, uh, and it always surprises people. So it's a, 
an amphibious plane, which means it can land on land and land on water. Right. So it has the wheels that will come down. Yes, that's yeah. right. And um, and f- for those listening, we're gesticulating a lot here, so you can't see that. <laughs> but imagine my hands moving up and down as the wheels go up and down. <laughs> and it, but it also means you can transition. So the cool thing is, you have the plane um, in the boatyard next to boats, and you start up the engine and you drive it down the boat ramp. No. Yeah, and that's the thing that, that always surprises people. Yeah. Like they see you land on the water and go, oh, okay, you can land on the water. They see you land at an airport and go, yeah, that makes sense. But when they see a plane drive down a boat ramp and then once you're in the water, you pull the wheels up and you take off and vice versa. That's you know, incredible. I've landed, one of the coolest things I did on the trip was landing on the Mississippi River in the town of Hannibal and it's where Mark Twain was raised. Yeah, yeah. So somewhere I've always wanted to go uh, and I love that Huck Finn story and I know that, you know, had a definitely had a, a long-term effect on me. But So going into Hannibal and I landed on the river and I was trying to work out where I might pull up and I saw a boat ramp. So I put down the wheels and I drove up the boat ramp and into the car park. And anyone who's ever had a boat with a trailer knows that, you know, they have nice big car parks at boat ramps so that you can leave your car and trailer. They do. So I drove up into the boat into the boat car park and I found a spot in this cobblestone area and I parked the plane and there was kind of no one around at that stage so I just locked up the plane and went into town to go to the museum. And, uh, yes, I went to the Mark Twain Museum. I went to a couple of exhibits. I went and saw the house that he grew up in and, uh, you know, two hours later came back to the plane and there's this huge crowd and the crowd are like, how did you land in the car park? Like, it's so (laughs) short. (laughs) And uh, it was so funny. They were like, no, 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 I came up that boat ramp and people just can't get their head around it. And then they said, so where have you come from? Oh, look, I've come from Melbourne. And they're like, in Florida, that's a long way away. It's like, no, 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 Melbourne in Australia. That's a long, long way away. And they just couldn't get their head around it. And, you know, so, you know, it's like you have to get out the map and say, yeah, yeah, so you did this and did this. And it was pretty funny. But it's a... She's a great little adaptable plane. It's only a two-seat plane, Mm -hmm. which I had to fly solo on this trip because the extra fuel tanks took up the space of the passenger seat. Yeah. And uh, that was always quite daunting. I I purposefully wanted as much in the plane to be properly installed as possible, if that makes sense. Um, So there are 13 hours of fuel tanks built into the plane, which means I can't see them. You know, they're out of sight, out of mind. You fill them up. Uh, and they're all plumbed into some valves where I can turn them on and off. But when I did really long legs, I would end up with uh, this literally a rubber bag on the passenger seat that right. was full of fuel. Like a bladder. Yeah, and it's a bl- and it's, so it's this massive bladder mm-hmm. and it's as high as you are in the seat. So it's sitting there like it's a like passenger. like another person, yeah. And it sits there wobbling. It's like explosive <laughs> jello. <laughs> It's not disconcerting at all. No, I mean, it really is the worst the feeling to look at that thing. It's like, oh. So, uh, but yeah, she's a great little plane. I think she's got a lot of character. Uh, if For those who don't know what it looks like, um, can I just say, if yeah. you go to southernsun.voyage, yeah, there's absolutely. a bunch of photos and the maps and things. So, And Southern Sun's her name? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because it's she's a boat, so she needs a name. She does. Mm. She does indeed. And uh, yeah, so single engine and yeah, well, it's basically a pretty basic little aeroplane. Uh, well, yeah, we, we fitted her out to go on a big trip. Okay, so I'll take us back a little bit before then and quite a way back actually to when you were a boy and you said you were you lived on the water and you were into sailing, is mm. that right? Is that where the adventurous spirit came from? Look, I think so. When we were on an orchard and when I was about eight, I built my first boat and it was... Uh, so I wanted to learn to sail and I got a, a one of the tubes out of the tractor and so I blew up a tube. Oh, yeah. 
and I put a piece of plywood on top and then I put a piece of plywood underneath to be the keel and I remember cutting up my tent fly and getting a pole and rigging up this sail. <laughs> now, it would only go downwind. So I, it would, I would go downwind across the dam, get out, walk around, you know, dodging the yabbies and get back on and then go downwind again. So... Dragging it along. Yeah, I mean, from a very, very early age, I just, I loved it. And, uh, you know, then Dad got me a, what's called a sabo, a little eight-foot pram mm-hmm. dinghy. And I was never into the whole sailing club racing scene. To me, sailing was about exploring. Yeah, right. And we had a... Uh, both we went to both Phillip Island and uh, Raymond Island in the Gippsland Lakes, uh, and probably the Gippsland Lakes was the place that really got my sense of adventure going because it, it's quite safe. It's a big inland lake system in, mm-hmm. um, in the east of Victoria, and you know we had this uh, basic shack on, on the island, but uh, we kept the boat out the front, and I'd just get in that little boat and just go off for hours at a time. And it was you know of course back before mobile phones and back before your parents worried so much. Yeah. So, you know, as I'd go off first thing in the morning with a packed lunch and you know, maybe a book to read in my little dinghy to go off exploring around the lakes, you know, the only th- I knew that my only stipulation was try to be back before dark. Mm-hmm. It wasn't you must be back before dark, but just try to be back before dark. <laughs> and Different uh, times. It was different times. and But, look, it's also a time when I think back and you know I, I had a lot of time to reflect as I was flying around the world because these flights were eight ten sometimes the longest one was 18 hours wow. long so I had a lot of time to think about things and you know I look back now and realize that as a young teenager seeing Albie Mangles in World Safari yep. as an example yep. uh, the Leyland Brothers on TV I mean I love those shows and I really really connected with them I mean I I actually have got a number of Leyland Brothers episodes on DVD at home just because I got home and thought, now, what was that all really like? And they're so daggy, it's not funny. No, I remember them. And uh, But but I love the charm of it. And again, it was simpler time. It was it reminds me of, uh, I forgot the name of the lady who does backtracks on ABC, but you know, that thing where you can just go, every little town's got a story and the idea of just going to a small place and meeting the people and just finding what's good and positive about it, whereas so much today seems to be about you know, what's wrong with it? Let's, yeah. let's find what's wrong rather than what's good about it. What are the positives? So, look, World Safari, I mean, you know, I'd, um, I often say, you know, people often compare what I did with Albie Mangles and it was kind of like, yeah, but it was without Judy Green. I right? was going to say yeah. without the lady in the bikini, yes. Yeah, which, you know, <laughs> when you look back, was just so tired now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, not of this age. Definitely not of this Different age. Era. You know, I met him. Did you? He, he reached out to me after the trip. It turns out he followed the trip couldn't believe it that's amazing and uh albie actually has uh got his seaplane pilot's license over one, at one point over the years he now lives in the philippines oh yes but i, I, I got this bizarre phone call one night uh simon saying look you don't know me uh i've had to track down your number albie mm-hmm. mangles is staying in my house and he wants to meet you i was like okay really so um yeah we'll come and uh, We'll come and have coffee with you in the morning. So he rocks up at 10 o'clock in the morning, supposedly for an hour, and then stayed for hours and just comparing notes and all these questions. And it was just fantastic. But yeah, yeah he really lives the life of a hermit now. I wonder why. After, I think after the third film um, flopped yeah. and, and they spent a fortune on it, he went, kind of went broke. Yeah, and right. uh, he just, you know, and the press really turned on him. They, I remember that. Yeah, really, I remember that period of yeah, time. And, you know, Judy had the accident. and the, But there was a period where, you know, he'd been up on the pedestal and then they just went for the went went for the kill. And uh, so sadly he just, you know, he retreated into his own little world. Lovely man, though. Oh, charming. Absolutely yeah. charming. Mm. 
Yeah. So, you know, that, that persona that we saw in the early movies was was, was really was him. Maybe the third one he went a bit far with um, seeing himself as, you know, the And ja- maybe James that's Bond. why, yeah, maybe that's why it didn't work as well. I think so, yeah. yeah. become anyway, altered. We've, we've gotten well what, off track. Yeah, tangents are my speciality. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So my childhood. Anyway, but Albie absolutely. And, yeah, look, I've really enjoyed just going off and, you know, whether it was pottering around in light breeze or, you know, even rowing. I rowed as a kid, so I used to just love getting about in boats. It's interesting you said you had a pack lunch and a book and off you went because it kind of, you know, you mentioned Huck Finn um, before. It must um, must have that, you know, enacting that yourself. Absolutely. And I always, I mean, I love that story so much of Huck Finn. And I always thought, uh, I've, I've been lucky to work in America quite a bit and I'd often thought, do you want to be great to just do the old go to the source of the, the river and get on it, make a raft and just go down and I know people have done it uh, and I, but you know they'd say it takes two to three months to do it at the speed that the river takes you mm. and I just thought I'm never going to have to have time months. to do that uh, a bit the same way I've always wanted to sail around the world but I thought I'm never going to have that two or three years no time soon but flying around the world I thought was something that was more achievable but uh, you know so when I went to the Mississippi I thought okay well you know I've always loved this Huck Finn story uh, let's follow the river so I you know to cross America I went to New Orleans and decided set myself the goal that I was going to follow every turn of the Mississippi River all the way to its source yeah and turns out there's a lot of turns Turns. (laughs) (laughs) so it it took about a week of just meandering up this river but I did it at flying it between five and eight hundred feet you know which is kind of it's you know the legal minimum that you're Mm -hmm. allowed to be at so I just stayed nice and low and I saw so much of the country and uh, I'd land on the river and sleep in the plane at night, land at lunchtime. It was just I'd, magical. I'd read that. So you just land on the river, tie up somewhere and... Yeah, literally. So I'd leave the wheels up and just nose the plane up to the uh, sandbank. Uh, so the Mississippi has lots and lots of sand islands, mm-hmm. which again were what Huck Finn would sleep on. Yeah. You know, they'd go down and pull up for the night and get, you know, bitten by mosquitoes. <laughs> and, uh, and there are lots of them. And did you sleep in the plane? I did. Yeah, it was unbelievably uncomfortable. Okay, I was wondering. Yeah, yes. it was the only way I could do it. There's nowhere to lay straight. But you know that image of uh, like the astronauts in the Apollo 11 capsule, how they were kind of on their back with their feet up in the air. Yeah, that's how I slept in the plane. It was on the seat with my head under the dash and my feet facing ah. backwards, but you know, kind of up in that astronaut prone position. And it did work, but you couldn't turn. And, no. Um, and it turns out, no matter how hard you try, the insects still get into the plane. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, anyway, about a thousand bites later. So, but I had this uh, camping equipment with me. I, I mean, I hadn't set out to really camp in the plane, I must say, but I had to carry emergency provisions in case I had to ditch somewhere. So, for instance, when I was crossing the Atlantic, yeah. I, had a, I had a little stove and some freeze-dried food and five litres of water and, and, you know, and a few things you need, um, as well as all the other safety equipment. So when I was going up the Mississippi, I just started raiding those supplies that I hadn't needed. It was so cool. I even had this little uh, portable espresso machine with me so I could start the day. Oh, in comfort, in Yeah, with a, with a shot of espresso. And, uh, you know, I think one morning I even had eggs for breakfast, but it was normally muesli bars. In fact... This isn't a plug because they weren't a sponsor, but <laughs> Carmen's Muesli Bars got me most of the way around the world. I think I left with a hundred of them in the nose of the plane. Well, that's a good Australian <laughs> brand, so it's a good story, that's for sure. We'll be back with our conversation with Michael after this. We have a special offer for all our listeners. 
Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia. So I think we probably, again, I feel like we're kind of, we're having this meandering conversation, which is wonderful, but maybe we need to come back to the start and explain to people what you actually did. We started in oh, yes. Melbourne and then went to Rose Bay. Yes. And I, why did you do And why that? did I do that? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I, and I, I keep forgetting, I didn't plan to go around the world. I uh, had this idea that it would be great to retrace the, very specifically, the 1938 Rose Bay to London flying boat route. Mm-hmm. And because I flew a flying boat, I'd always been interested in the history of the flying boats. Uh, but also someone who, uh, I used to have an office in London mm-hmm. and Singapore, and I used to do a monthly round trip of, you know, two or three days in Singapore, two or three days Gosh. in London, and then come back. And I did it in economy because, you know, we're a startup and I was careful with my money and yeah. it nearly killed me. Uh, you know, back before they had TVs in the back of the seats, that was tough mental space to, you know, manage. Yep. But... Uh, and I used to, and I'd remembered years and years ago reading about the glory days of that of that London trip where it took 10 days. So this is the 1930s, 1938, yeah? and they, they took off from Rose Bay and they'd refuel twice during the day and then on the third one they'd land and they'd uh, go and stay at luxury hotels. And if there wasn't a hotel, Qantas built them. Uh, so, you know, there was some middle-of-nowhere places where they had to build a hotel, but, you know, when they landed in Singapore, they stayed at Raffles. Oh, my. Oh, my, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, you didn't just take your baggage. You took your dinner suit because, of course, you had to dress properly. Well, of course. And so I thought, what an amazing part time in history. And I'd lo- always loved the idea of, I'd always thought, if I'm fascinated with that, maybe there are other people who'd like to do that. And so I actually had some discussions trying to work out where can we get a flying boat to redo this and maybe, you know, the, and get people to pay to do this trip. That all went nowhere. It was all a bit too hard and time's moved on. But I really just couldn't get rid of this idea of doing it. And so I got to a point where um, I thought my two sons were at university. They'd both had gap years. I, I failed. You needed a gap year? Well, I failed my gap year. I tried to have a gap year when I was 21 and um, ended up work starting a job and never left. Right. So I thought I'm, I'm going to go and do my gap year. And uh but at that stage, I was just planning two months. I'd allowed two months to fly through to London mm-hmm. and then was gonna, my wife was going to meet me at the other end and thought, you know, that would be a nice three-month break from work. And uh, so that all, to be honest, went really well. I spent years planning it. It was sort of an after-dinner project of planning where I'd go and researching. So you were trying to stop in all of the places that the, the original... Where I, could, where I could politically... Yeah land so mm-hmm. I, you know i couldn't land i asked to land in iraq they kind of laughed at me uh, uh you know i wanted to land on the sea of galilee they wouldn't let me land on the the lake but they did let me you know go into israel at least so uh-huh. the, i could have meandered all the way through some of those problems but it it was fantastic to you know go into all of those spaces but you know there's a lot of research just working out not only where did they land but where did they stay mm. and so once i'd put together this fantastic spreadsheet and you know often i think adventures begin with an excel spreadsheet uh you know it was kind of time to go so i just did and you know there was no fanfare i didn't you didn't seek out sponsors no i didn't no. want to sponsor i because it was a personal trip yeah right. um yeah and look 
I think, you know, people are often like, why didn't you get a sponsor? It was such a big trip. And I was like, well, this was just a personal journey. Just for me. And, you know, people do lots of amazing journeys. I mean, people get in their cars and drive with a caravan around Australia. They don't issue a press release. Well, actually, maybe today people do. But, but, you <laughs> they know, blog about it. Yeah, they blog about <laughs> it. But generally they didn't. So I, I just thought, well, that, that's the journey I'm going on. Uh, and I was really happy not to have sponsors. I... I was able to afford to do it myself, but I was being really careful about the money. Uh, you know, I manually refueled to save money and I, you know, did as much of the paperwork and handling as I could to save money. And So uh, were the major expenses the fuel? Fuel and clearance costs. Uh, every time you land, uh, because I was flying from country to country, I had to land at international airports. So... Um, you have to have the same way that, you know, a commercial airline lands, I had to have the same people there to meet me. Right. So, so you've got the guy with the ping pong bats. You've got the guy with all of the paperwork and, you know, they feel there's, they, they're there waiting for you and they've got all this paperwork pre-prepared. You've paid them to be your agent to look after everything. But that was several hundred dollars per stop. And how many stops were there along the way? Uh, 25, 25, I think. Okay. Yeah, maybe even more. Um, actually, there must be more because there was 80 stops in the end to go all the way around the world. But it's a lot of money and yeah. it really adds up. Yeah, definitely. But you just can't get around it. So, uh, yeah, so we did that. And they – it was really nice following you – know, because it gave me a thread. It gave me a purpose to it. If I just said, oh, I'm going to fly to London because that will be fun, mm. I kind of wouldn't have had that direction. But following the flying boat route meant that when I got to a city, it you know, rather than – looking up TripAdvisor to see what are the top 10 things to do in this city. I already knew. I was going to see where did the flying boats used to land. I'd go to the museum, see if there was any part of that I could find. And I had this other uh, thread to it going, which was uh, I was actually doing my MBA and I was doing a research project into cinema and the community benefit of cinema. And so I decided that I'd also visit cinemas in each of these stops. Okay, so just for uh, people listening, why cinema? I know, but perhaps they don't. So my day job is that we run cinemas and uh, my the job that used to have me going to England was um, as after uni, my first job was designing and building cinema equipment. So I've done that my whole life. And years ago, we ended up buying an old cinema, my, my wife and I, which we restored. It's called the Sun Theatre in Melbourne. Beautiful Art Deco cinema. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're now you know, heavily involved in the, the business of running cinemas and... Yeah, and I'm fascinated with what makes them work and the, I suppose the... I think it's, I think cinemas are about a lot more than just watching movies. I think there's a community benefit, a, a way to bring people together in the same way that uh, you know, people used to regularly go to church on Sunday. We see there are people who regularly come to the movies once a week. So I kind of wanted to study that a bit more and understand that mm. uh, on that journey. I think also particularly in this age... <clears throat> Excuse me. Where you know Netflix has had such a stand, have had such big impact on people's viewing. Um, to have that community draw um, is really important. I think so too. And people often ask me, "Are you worried about uh, Netflix?" And I'm like, "Not, not at all. Netflix is a competitor to TV. Mm. There's been great TV in the past, and when TV was great, cinema was down a bit. And you know, when DVDs first came out, cinema suffered a bit. Uh, same with VHS. But you know, to me, anything." that gets people absorbing storytelling is great. And, you know, I don't expect people to come to the movies every night because that would be excessive Mm. in the same way that most people don't eat out at a restaurant every night. But some people eat out at a restaurant once a week and some people eat out once a month. And I think there's a very similar 
uh, habits with people in going to the movies. Yeah, 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 definitely. So you had accommodation places, you had museums, you had cinemas. How often, how long would you stay in one place? Uh, always uh, two nights. Two uh, nights. Once I left Australia, I was determined that I wasn't in a rush. So uh, I planned for two nights in each place and then then every roughly 10 days I'd stop for three nights. Just to, And it was partly to make sure I didn't get tired mm-hmm. but uh, partly to make sure I had a really good look around because I wanted to see the world. I didn't, you know, yeah, just want to fly over point? it. Yeah. And also uh, just to make sure from a weather point of view, you know, because if you get a couple of bad days of weather and you've got a really tight schedule, then the entire schedule goes out the window and some of these... Um, airways clearances took months to get so you know you don't want those getting mucked up because you had too tight a schedule but the main thing is I wanted to look around and Mm. I you know I had a ball. So when flying in good weather how important is that with in this sort of plane? Really it's really nice to be in nice weather (laughs) and it's really bad to be in bad weather. Look it's a small plane and it's a very manual plane it doesn't have an autopilot Yep, so it's all on you. Yeah, and it's yeah. not set up. It has very basic instrumentation. So it has one of the basic instruments uh, that can show you which way is up, uh, which you need for flying at night, which I do do, mm-hmm. but not really set up for flying in clouds and definitely not set up for flying in bad weather. And, in fact, I, you know, it frankly, it leaks. <laughs> Fun times. Yeah, yeah, she's both. So you got to London. Mm. <clears throat> and that was meant to be the end of the trip? And then what happened? It was. The plan was that I was going to get a container, pack up the plane. You can just unbolt the wings and put it in a container and send it home. And uh, my wife met me in uh, one deviation to the course I made. Was we, I went to Lake Como. Because oh. what a beautiful... Because why, uh, why not? Because that's it. So, yeah. Uh, you know, Qantas used to f- stop in uh, a couple of spots in Italy uh, and from Rome they flew to Greece. But... Now, uh, does Lake Como have the oldest something or so, other? Yeah, it does. It has the oldest seaplane base in the world, a continuously operating seaplane base in the world, mm-hmm. and uh, a very, very active uh, seaplane scene there. They have several planes on floats that uh, they take people on joy flights, and it's a magnificent way to see the lake. And so I thought it would be nice to stop there, and so Anne met me there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she flew in commercially, and uh, we had a, like, quite frankly, probably the most romantic, wonderful week of our lives. Oh, it, uh, it was just so special. And I, you know, and that's probably partly because I was feeling pretty content and happy and I, you know, had this amazing six and a bit weeks to get to there. And, yeah, so we just had this week of relaxing and, you know, and said, well, you seem to really be enjoying this. Um, are you sure you don't want to keep going? And I was like, just let me get to London. Like, like <laughs> let's, let's not jinx it. But by the time I got to London, I thought, well, look, the planes worked really well. Uh, there were only, you know, small maintenance issues along the way. And like you'd expect um, any kind of maintenance to come up at some point. So I uh, thought, yeah, why not? Um, and I, but, I, but at that stage, I wasn't sure if I could get around the world. I mean, the plane doesn't have a huge range. And I wasn't sure if I'd be able to get across the Pacific but I thought, I really don't want to pack up the plane in a container. That sounds like really hard work. So at a minimum, I'll fly to America, I'll cross the Atlantic and I'll go down to back to Florida where the plane was built. Mm-hmm. And if I think I can get across the Pacific, I'll keep going. But if not, I'll get them to service the plane and pack it up and ship it home for me. So that's kind of how that next leg happened. So the trip very much ended, ended up compartmentalised in uh, Melbourne to London, London to uh, New York, and then it became you know, sort of New York home. Mm-hmm. And 
I, uh, yeah, and the Atlantic turned out to be a really, really hard part of the trip. I realised that uh, flying to London was relatively easy. There was generally land beneath me. Sometimes it was desert, sometimes it was forest, but there was generally civilization nearby. And I was in radio contact uh, all the way. But, you know, the day I left England, I couldn't leave because of bad weather. Right. And then the next day I left, uh, it was still bad weather. And I flew around the bad weather to get to Ireland. And then when I was ready to leave Ireland, I got stuck because of bad weather. And it was kind of just ominous of why crossing the Atlantic was a big deal and why people had struggled with it, you know, for a hundred years. And, you know, so many people died trying to cross the Atlantic in the early days. Because of bad weather? A lot of it was because of bad weather. Some of it was because of, um, you know, probably planes just breaking down and never being heard from us or mismanaging fuel. Uh, Were they longer stretches of flying? uh, They would have been back then. Yeah, Yeah. right. So I... I uh, couldn't fly directly across the Atlantic. The range I had at that stage meant that I needed to fly from Ireland to Iceland to Greenland to Canada and then to New York. Well, I can't imagine, sorry to interrupt you, but flying over Iceland and Greenland would have been spectacular. Well, that's the thing is, you know, like I wasn't disappointed. I, these are places I've always wanted to go and yeah. I thought, well, I'm going to embrace this. Like, I, And I, you know, my only regret now is that I should have stayed longer in each of those places because I was like, oh, I really should keep going. I should keep going. So, you know, in Iceland, I stopped for two nights, but, oh, gee, I wish I'd stopped for a few. And uh, each of the stops in Greenland, I only stopped for one night. Now, they were pretty basic places. Yeah. Uh, when I stopped, uh, the first stop, Kulasuk, is on the east coast of Greenland and it's a, the most isolated place. It's a little community of 200 people and there's no town 300 miles north or 300 miles south. And there's nothing in the middle, right? So then it's the other side of the country. And uh, so flying from Iceland to Greenland was incredible. Uh, There's an image you'll see if you go to the website, which is flying over the float ice. The entire ocean was just covered in floating ice. And I was down at 500 feet to try and stay out of some really strong headwinds. And so, you know, down at that level, you you just see everything. And, uh, you know, I saw seals sunbaking. I mean, just oh, stop. amazing. Amazing. And, yeah. but then you also feel so isolated. And every now and again, you know, it just jumps into your mind, gee, I hope the engine doesn't stop here because <laughs> you might be in a seaplane. But I got to tell you, landing between the ice wasn't going to come out too well. But, uh, you know, it's, and a lot of people ask me that, weren't you worried about, you know, being in a single engine plane? But look, sometimes, but really, you've just got to compartmentalize that. And I'd, flown one of these planes for 10 years. I knew the plane well Mm. and I had a high sense of confidence in it. I knew I'd done the maintenance. And if you're just worried all the time, what if, what if, then you'd just be a mental wreck. Well, you you, just wouldn't do it, would you, in the end? And that's why a lot of people don't do it, I suppose. Mm. And, yes, it's a managed risk. And uh, But once I got to Greenland, then the the scenery just became truly spectacular. Uh, I mean, Greenland, I hadn't really thought a lot about Greenland uh, and it's... Lots of fjords, like all the way down the coast. It is literally fjord after fjord. After so incredibly dramatic. Yeah, and uh, these you know, glacial flows just eking their way oh. down out of the fjords into the water. And they look like they've got those big ripples. You know those bulldogs that have got the ripply necks? Oh, yeah. That's yeah. what the, From the air, that's what the glaciers look like. And you can just kind of sense the enormity of these millions of tonnes of ice just slowly moving their way out to the ocean. Like eking their way through the yeah. through the landscape. It's just incredible. And 
yeah, so then I went down to the south of uh, Greenland into a, um, I can never say, probably Narsaswak or something it's called, but a very isolated uh, town right down in the south, and but bit, which is where it's green. You know, this is why Greenland's called Greenland because this is where they first arrived. And that's what and they, that, and they And these beautiful bays um, and... Uh, where there are huge icebergs just floating by, you know, you sit out there. I, and I did stop there for two nights and, uh, yeah, they, um, these huge icebergs just floating past. It's, it sounds uh, incredibly surreal. Oh, it is. Yeah. It is. And th- there are a few tourists down there. There are no tourists in Korsuk. But in this place uh, there was an uh, um, old US Air Force base uh, which was deactive but uh, they did have like dash eights going in and taking people. They'd kind of land there and then go and do something else. So maybe they were going to walk on a glacier or maybe right. they were kayaking. There wasn't a lot to do in town. There was a little museum, but uh, still felt like a special place. It was also interesting because that was there was quite a bit of humanity there. There was uh, it was a spot where a lot of people who were delivering planes across the Atlantic would actually land there. So, you know, as I was going off to the tower to put in my flight plan, there were actually quite a few planes. And, and most of the trip, I hadn't seen other people. I was usually, you know, the only guy on a small plane at a big airport. But, uh, and they kind of, most of the, the guys kind of laughed at me. They just looked at the plane and just thought, you idiot. <laughs> How does one respond to that? <laughs> well, I kind of shrugged, but it literally was, you know, because I remember one guy who was a Swiss airline pilot, you know, and the Swiss are blunt at the best of times. Mm. Uh, he was delivering a thing called a Cirrus, which is like the BMW 7 Series of, of small planes. And he was delivering that across the Atlantic. And he looked at mine and he just went, Pff. he didn't need to say anything else. It was just, it was just shattering. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, look, I knew I was having more fun. So um, Now, I've, I, you have a book about the, your journey and also a film about your journey. Mm. And I know reading the book, uh, you talked about one of the not necessarily unexpected pleasures of the trip was the people you met along the way. Oh, 100%. Yeah? Look, and it's, a, it's such a great lesson and it it wasn't a complete surprise because I'd travelled around Australia extensively in the plane and and I'd always been impressed how, you know, you, you, you rock up in some little outback town and the number of times I've had, you know, the guy who say there to refuel the plane and help you and, you know, he says, oh, so what are you doing now, mate? Oh, I thought I might get some lunch. How are you going to do that? I was going to call a taxi. No taxis here, mate. <laughs> but, you know, he'd throw you the keys and say, take me, you. Uh, I'll get my wife to pick me up. Just do what you need to do and leave the key by the pub. I'll yeah. pick it up later, the sort of thing. And, uh, and, you know, that's not a one-off. That's happened so many times. Or someone says, oh, you know, that's fine. I'll give you a lift, uh, help you out. So, but I saw that all over the world. And, and But the thing I think pleased me the most was there were so many places that people were worried about me going to. You know, they were worried about me going into Pakistan and into Saudi Arabia and into, you know, other parts of the Middle East. And, you know, your family and your friends can't help but be nervous because they've watched the evening news, which has had them preconditioned to think that these are dangerous parts of the world. Well, let me tell you that all throughout that part of the world, people could not have been more helpful or mm. kinder. Uh, in India, it was hilarious. I mean, India is the re- you know, has the record for taking longest to process the paperwork. It was roughly three hours at every single airport. But once they find out you're from Melbourne, they want to talk about the MCG. No. And they're just, yes. you know, it's, it's all so slow but well-meaning. And so you've just got to embrace it and go with it. And I was very conscious of it because I'd read, as someone who has voraciously read 
books about travel and adventure over the years, it always disappointed me, not upset me, but disappointed me when people complain about bureaucracy and complain about, especially, you know, the Indians and complain about, you know, how can it possibly be so hard? And, you know, it was ridiculous and they couldn't speak a word of English and this sort of thing. And it just, you know, it just makes you shiver, doesn't it? It's like you're the visitor. Mm. um, You're there to discover their culture. And if part of their culture is that there are 12 people employed with a rubber stamp each to stamp this piece of paper, embrace it. You know, quietly laugh at it if you want, but just embrace it. No, That's for sure. what it it's is. Part of the journey, and I and I love that. And uh, and but it also highlights that that importance of mental framing because if you go in with that attitude, it's fine. But if you think, how can this possibly take so long? Well, then you're going to be disappointed. So those people just kept pleasing me in so many ways. There was a, this lovely young guy in the town of Patna in India, uh, and my wife had started this really lovely thing where she was sending me an email of research so that as I landed, I had um, what the local food was for that area and, you know, what the locals would eat. Oh, fantastic. And so this was just her part of her connection to my trip was to go and eat these foods and tell her what they were like and take a photo. Oh, that's really lovely. So, yeah, and it really was and mm. I really look forward to getting it. And, you know, so I remember I was at Partner and, and I showed the email, you know, to the guy and I said, look, um, you know, my wife suggested I should eat these things. Where would I get them? And he's like, oh, that is street food. Uh, you won't get that at the hotel. Uh, but I tell you what, I'll come and pick you up from the hotel and I'll take you to that part of town. And and I was just like, yeah, great. You know, young guy, that'll be fantastic. And you kind of assumed, oh, you know, maybe he wants a bit of a money for it. But yeah, that's all right. He's being nice. So he rocks up on his motorbike. <laughs> and it's like, okay. Good. So I get on the back of his motorbike. He's only got one helmet. Um but he offers it to me. It's I very nice. I was ask if yeah. you did, yeah. So, uh, and we're riding along and I'm thinking, oh, this is, you know, I, I mean, I've ridden motorbikes before, but I've never really been on the pillion. So In India. Yeah, especially in India. Mm. So, we, you know, we're zipping in and out of traffic like they do and you just think, oh, well, maybe this, maybe this is it, maybe it's not. <laughs> but uh, he just, with such great spirit, took me to these amazing parts of town and we walked around and ate the street food and just really connected with people on the street. Um and, uh, you know, we're riding along and, and, I, and I could feel that the riding was a little bit jerky. You know, we'd slow down and then we'd speed up and we'd slow down, we'd speed up. But the traffic's kind of erratic anyway. But then I noticed that he was actually answering texts. <laughs> and because he was doing it with his right hand, which is where the throttle is, he'd answer, he'd get halfway through answering a text and then give it a rev and then answer a bit more text and then give it a rev. And then when I looked around, it's how everyone rides their motorbike there. Like Getting not, stuff done. Yeah. So. <laughs> Did you get off at that point? It's like, oh, no, we'll we, no, we kept going, but I just, yeah, just bit my tongue. And uh, but you know, we got back to the hotel, and I offered him, you know, some money, and he didn't want it. He yeah. said, no, I'm just really wanted to show you my city. Oh, that's so beautiful. And that just kept happening. And in fact, one of the interesting things was you realise the effect that we as tourists have on a city, because, and it never really occurred to me until on this trip. Because I was going to places that tourists don't normally go to. I mean, no one's heard of Patna. Um, mm. And Gwalior up in the north, I went because Qantas used to land and refuel the flying boat there. Um, so I went there. But there's only a military airport. I got special permission to land there. I couldn't. Um, and uh, so you go into these amazing cities where there are no tourists. And so no one, there were no beggars. And I realised that from the uh, time I'd left Chiang Mai, 
where there were kids asking for money. But from the time I left Chiang Mai to the time uh, all through there, no one asked me for money. So no one in India, no one in Chittagong and no one in Pakistan, mm-hmm. not one kid or person in the street approached and asked for money. And I thought, isn't that interesting that uh, it does make you realise that, you know, that begging is a result of us being there. Yeah, that conditioning. Mm. Mm. But, yeah, people went out of their way. Now, I'll tell you where they didn't go out of their way. Because I do love to f- tell this flip side. I, I was at uh, Oshkosh, a massive air show in America a couple of years ago, giving a talk. And at the end, one of the guys in his good old southern accent got up, and which I won't try to do, <laughs> and said, gee, you must have had some problems in those, you know, Middle Eastern uh, countries. You know, how many bribes did you have to pay? And I, th- and I said, well, it's funny you should ask that because, like I've just explained... Through that part of the world, people may have been slow, but they couldn't have been more helpful, and I was never once asked to pay a bribe. Now, I had handlers, so you could argue I paid them in advance, you know, on official terms, but I never paid a bribe. I was never asked to, never hinted at. Except when I got to England and I got to America, I was detained by the authorities and I was interrogated by both of them, and both of them talked about me paying fines. Now, what is a fine? It's a form of payment for whatever they want to call it, but... You know, I just thought in the two countries that are supposedly our allies and friends, it was where I was given the hardest time. So lighten up, guys. Oh, did he have much to say about that? He sat down. Yeah. But I enjoyed it. Yeah, I bet you did. (laughs) There weren't many questions after that. I I think I lost the crowd. (laughs) They just slowly dispersed. Yeah, they went off and just waited for their chance to vote for Trump. (laughs) Oh, now there's a conversation we can really get into. That's another week. Yeah. yeah. And another show, I think. I think so. This is the end of the first part of my conversation with Michael. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talkingaustralia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and hear you next time.